This is the Education Gadfly Show. I'm putting thunder to sleep. I see you just laid down. <laughs> anyway. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Christy Wolf. Christy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. I can't remember if we've had you on the Education Gadfly show ever. Is this your first time? Hi, you know, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Okay. All right. Well, you know, we have had Nina on many, many times, including one of our very first episodes way back when. Right. Uh, Christy, for those that don't know, is the Vice President for Policy and Planning for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, which is the nation's premier organization advocating for charter schools. And uh, that is keeping you busy these days, as we will talk about. I should say that my regular co-host, David Griffith, is taking some time off because he's got a new baby in the house. He's got a a beautiful little daughter that was born recently and is doing just fine. So. yeah, he's busy uh, and not sleeping and probably not listening to the podcast either. But if you are, David, we're thinking of you. But there you go. <laughs> Christy and I, you know, we, we worked together, oh my goodness, way back 20 years ago in the George W. Bush administration. Yeah, back when the tumbleweeds were still blowing down the hallways. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. And now we were just talking about uh, our, our kids being in high school and getting bigger than us. And this this is how it goes. This is how it goes. Well, hey. Uh, We have important things to talk about because, unfortunately, the charter school program, the federal charter school program, uh, is facing a new challenge coming from the Biden administration. Let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Christy. So our friends uh, in the Biden administration put out some proposed regulations for three of the six federal charter school program grant initiatives. These are the, the basically the money that goes out to states or to charter networks or to individual charter schools in states that don't have a federal charter school grant. They've put out these regulations and you and I both and everyone else in the charter sector is quite worried about them. But let's start with this, like just, just a little background, like what, what is going on here? Is this typical that an administration would come in and issue new regulations on a grant program like this? Is it all bad? Is it just a somewhat bad? Give us a sense of what this thing is that they put out. Yeah, sure. So it's not unusual for an administration to want to put its mark on competitive grant programs because they're allowed to do that. And it gives them some opportunities to put their own uh, priorities, a signature interest in it. But what's different about what has been proposed in this case is just the the depth and the breadth at which the number of pages of regulations that are being proposed. So whereas a secretary might come in and say, you know, I would really want to make sure these three priorities are met. Um, The administration has included a raft of not just priorities, but new requirements, assurances, definitions, paperwork requirements. So it's, it's not just recalibrating. It's, Mm -hmm. it's fundamentally shifting. Yeah, and it's an important distinction because it's true that every administration comes in, they do want to nudge these programs in a certain direction. Now, you know, the programs are pretty clear in the statute. Congress, when they reauthorize these programs, last one was with with ESSA back in 2015, you know, they weigh in and, and they do changes to what the programs, you know, who's eligible, where the money can be spent. And, and also, as you say, these priorities, it's about 
if you've got more states, let's say, applying for the money, then there's money. How do you decide which states get it? And for right. a long time, this program has said, well, we want states with really good charter school laws to get the money because they're the ones that are in the best position to actually start new charter schools. Doesn't make sense to give the money to a state that doesn't have a charter school law <laughs> or has a terrible charter school law, which has happened at times over the years with, with money going to states with terrible charter school laws. So that makes sense. Sometimes, you know, administrations say, well, we, we want to focus on, uh, you know, charter schools that are single site charter schools or more community based or those that are, you know, maybe more diverse by design, racially diverse. I think that was something the Obama folks put in there at one point. But this is different, as you say, because it's, it's not just about tinkering or nudging, you know, which state might get the money and which state might not. Some of these, these new requirements that apply to everybody, it could mean that very few entities actually meet those requirements, right? That, that in effect, right. <laughs> they got this money, you know, to give out hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And then there's nobody who can actually meet the requirements, the money doesn't get used. And then we start up a lot fewer charter schools. So the one that I think has us worried the most is something around a community impact analysis. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, sure. That is certainly at the top of our list of concerns about what the department's proposing. So they have eight elements that are part of the, this plan. And this is an impact analysis that every grantee would need to do. So if you're a CMO coming in, if you're a developer coming in, and then a state's got to talk about how they're got to require their charters to do this analysis, you know, whether or not they've already done it in some different way for an authorizer or for their own grant program. So um, there's there's two key components to this that, that we're concerned about. One is that it really seems to be focused around the impact of a school on district enrollment. It explicitly states that the charter school needs to supply evidence that charter schools will not exceed the number of public schools needed to meet community demand. And it uses terms like whether there's over enrollment. So the picture it paints is like, okay, we have our students and we're gonna see if there are any extras and you get the extras, but if you don't, if we don't have any extra, then that's gonna impact the district and, and that's, that's inherently negative. That's what's implied in having to write to that kind of application requirement. And there's nowhere else in the, in the narrative requirements that addresses whether or not there's access to high quality seats. It's mm-hmm. just seats. And that's what then leads the dotted line or direct line to funding for the district. Um, secondly, there's a requirement that the applicants have to show how they're going to plan and maintain a racially diverse student and staff population. So, you know, to your point earlier about initial interest of the Obama administration in diverse by design schools, in 2016, ESSA rewrote the charter schools program to a large extent and incorporated a diverse um, charter school priority for the CMOs. This goes well beyond that, because Mm -hmm. as part of what you're doing to justify your existence as a charter school, you need to show that you're trying to make it a diverse charter school, regardless of your community. Mm -hmm. So if you're a culturally affirming charter school, you're wanting to serve an indigenous population, and then all of a sudden you have to write to an application requirement on which you will be scored and potentially your funding is based on, you've got to basically disrupt your entire model. Or if you're in in a city or a racially isolated area because of housing patterns, or you're in a district that's racially isolated, 
you will have to somehow make your school a diverse charter school. So there's a lot of concerns about elevating that as the preferred charter model, as opposed to having it one among many Mm -hmm. and having it ironically reflective of community needs and wants, you know, that's what's ironic about that requirement. Yeah. And, and, and of course, a a lot of the best charter schools in the country are in urban areas uh, that do not have a lot of racial diversity or socioeconomic diversity. They just don't, you know, it's Anacostia in DC, you know, it's the Bronx in New York. I mean, it's diverse in other ways. There might be people from all over the world. There might be, you know, frankly, there's not many white kids or in some cases, Asian American kids in those places, not many middle-class kids. And those schools are serving populations desperately in need of great schools, you know, and this thing, this idea that it only makes sense to start a new charter school if, if there's extra kids, if there's a growing enrollment. Well, you know, we can count the number of districts in America right now with growing enrollment on maybe two hands or maybe two feet. I mean, you know, out of 14,000, all over the country, we have flat or declining enrollment as we've got still a bunch of kids missing uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic and because of the baby bust, you know, because after the Great Recession, we have this big baby bust. And so just naturally, there are fewer kids coming into elementary schools today. And to say that, therefore, we should stop growing the charter school movement, even though we've got cities all over the country that have these huge charter school waiting lists where parental demand is off the charts, where we saw through the pandemic that parents were voting with their feet trying to get into these charter schools. It really, it's a crazy notion unless you view charter schools as a threat. And, and here, Christy, is where I just feel like they're not following the science, which they always say they like to do, Right. We know now from rigorous studies, including several done here at Fordham, uh, that when you expand uh, charter enrollment, it is good for everybody. It is a rising tide that really does lift all boats, that the kids in the traditional public schools do better and the kids in the charter schools do better. We also know from a study at Fordham and other places that the fiscal impact just isn't there. The way charter laws are written, the districts end up with more money per pupil. And we do not see in, in this big study we did all over the country, we do not see places where they are cutting instructional spending. So all of this is based on a faulty premise, you know, which is that we've got some zero-sum game, that charter schools are a mortal threat to districts and traditional public schools. None of that is true. You know, but yet here comes this administration. They put in these regulations. They only give a month for feedback, which is way shorter than normal. So that's a worrying sign. Uh, and what? I mean, so what, what can we do, Christy? What can those of us that hear this and say, well, this doesn't make any sense at all, especially, let's be honest, people perhaps that do have good relationships with folks who work inside the Biden administration, who want to appeal to them and to their better angels. Uh, what can be done between now and April 13th when comments are due on this regulation? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious is to submit a comment on the regulation uh, through regulations.gov. If you search on the charter school's notice of proposed priorities, you'll pull it right up. We also have a a way to help you submit comments. So that's another way. If you don't, you know, that's not something you want to do every day is write your own little comment letter. Uh, We can help you with that. Um, We have those tools available. I think that, you know, to your point about the, the comment window being 30 days and all of this being rushed, like we're very concerned about grants getting out this year. Um, and it's already late in the year. Um, I think if folks need to uh, raise that concern with their, with their congressperson or any connections that you have. You know, the, the department didn't run grant competitions last year. 
it's getting late this year. States and developers and CMOs need as much time as possible to respond to any new requirements. So really, I mean, it's a public comment period because this is supposed to be the stakeholder engagement. Ideally, that would have started a while ago and maybe we wouldn't be in this position. Um, but it's time to, to raise the roof and make sure folks realize that these are real substantive changes. These are not just, oh, we're just requiring charters you know, to do things that they're already doing. And look, it sounds to me like the best case scenario here is to convince the Biden folks, look, just scrap this, put it on the shelf for now, get these grants out this year. And then, you know, if you are committed to some of these tweaks, you know, try again for next year when you've got more time to get it right. But that right, this is right. a disaster. If you're not willing to do that, at least take out some of the ridiculous language around, you know, how do you judge market demand for charter schools and, and looking at this community impact? That would certainly go a long way. But as you say, Christy, it's it's the totality of it that makes it so challenging. It's it's the fact that it is so burdensome. Uh, you know, even stuff that might be reasonable that you know maybe things we haven't talked about that are more reasonable but end up adding this huge paperwork burden that means that only the biggest networks with the biggest staff who can afford the lawyers who can make this happen and so you know as a result you end up with fewer of the schools that supposedly the administration says they want those that are really based in a community those that are you know started by a couple of teachers who have a vision who right. want to get it done right so we need to let our voices be heard on this one because this is a big problem. And we, we could be missing out on, again, hundreds of millions of dollars going out to help start charter schools. That can make a serious impact on the trajectory of the movement and whether kids are going to be getting to enroll in great new schools in a year or two from now. And that's a big deal for their lives and for their opportunities. All right. Well, that's my soapbox. And thank you for <laughs> coming here, Christy, to, to give us the details. And everybody yeah, sure. seriously listening, it's worth it. This is one of those things you hear people say, oh, write your congressman or do it. I mean, submitting comments, it really matters. They are legally yes. required to read every comment and to address them. So, you know, just take the time, take 10, 20 minutes, send in a comment. It's super important. All right. Well, thanks again, Christy Wolf, Vice President for Policy and Planning for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Hope you'll come on the show uh, sometime again with maybe happier news. Yes, let's, let's aim for that. All right, great. Thanks so much, Christy. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the Thank show. Thank you, Mike. So yeah, it's uh, bring your dog to work day here at Fordham. <laughs> Except you're the only one that got the memo. <laughs> I forgot to tell everybody else. But yes, my dog Thunder is right here with us. Aren't you? Thunder? He is staring you down, Mike. He, he oh is, my gosh. I think he wants a T-R-E-A-T. I'm not going to oh, say it out loud, it? you know? I don't think we have anything here at the office that would be of interest to in him. We, well, hopefully he won't start barking because uh, he's looking like, uh, look, you better, you better come up with this thing quick. <laughs> you know, we were just reminiscing in the before times. We did have a day when we had an official bring a dog to work day. We did. And there were maybe three or four of us that brought dogs. Right. And and some some were good and right. some fun. Some were a little yappy that oh, were having God. a little bit of a problem around the office culture. You were talking about your dog, Brandon. That's right. <laughs> Thankfully, Brandon at the time only lived like 15 minute walk from the office. So when his dogs uh, flunked the test and <laughs> after about right. 45 minutes, he was able to take them. Home. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And I think this is the very first one we've had since then. I, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, and, and Amber, I will say we, we had a good chat there, Christy Wolf and I. It's just really frustrating what's happening with these regulations. And and more than anything, that the Biden administration, they seem to be, you know, reading, I don't know, Diane Ravitch uh, and Carol Burris's oh, stuff sorry. instead of our that's research right. empirical studies that's it. showing that it is just not true that charter schools are negatively impacting traditional public, public schools. schools right we've got this several studies and not just us right that are finding yeah. the same findings so yeah, yeah it's uh it's it makes you think it's about politics and not <sighs> research mike <sighs> go figure go, go figure all right. Well, what you got for All us? All right. Week? I'm not covering a scholarly study per se, but I like this report. I've covered it before. It's the annual report put out by Renaissance Learning that tracks what kids are reading every year mm-hmm. via this accelerated reader program that's super popular, and they have this massive digital library. The latest report includes information about reading selections from roughly 23,000 schools with 4.5 million students. For the 2021 school year, obviously that year was impacted by the pandemic, but the report makes no mention of how. So not sure. Um, But Accelerated Reader, I just read a little bit about it. It's said to be student driven, but teacher guided. The teacher sets personalized goals for independent reading for each student, focusing on time spent reading, reading comprehension and reading difficulty. Mm -hmm. And then students get to select and read those books. I guess they select them, but I mean, it was really not clear to me at all whether they could choose books outside of these teacher set goals. Mm. Um, that seems to be the case, you know, given what I'm about, about to share with you. But anyway, uh, the report tallies the most popular book titles in print and digital form. I'm mostly talking about the print selections here. It also provides three indicators of readability, including an ATOS formula, which measures average sentence length and word length and word difficulty. It's pegged to grade and month of the school year. So an ATOS of 5.4 indicates text. A typically performing fifth grader could read by the fourth month of the academic mm-hmm. year. Like how, I'm like, yay, that's intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lexiles are also provided, which supply a similar measure, but it's not intuitive as this ATOS measure. Finally, interest levels are provided as well, which are publishers' recommendations about the sophistication and maturity level of the content. Mm-hmm. So they say, ah, oh, this is appropriate for lower, middle, or upper grades. I'm putting Thunder us to sleep. I see you just <laughs> laid down. <laughs> anyway. He's like, come on. He's come on, Amber. Um, all right, first, the popular titles by grade level and their ATOS reading level in grade K. 50% of the books were read to kids, by the way. That was kind of important to know, right? Mm-hmm. 21% mm-hmm. were read with kids and 29% presumably read independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this explains why the top print titles, including the Biscuit series. Mm-hmm. Don't know that one. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know about the Biscuit. might be a The Biscuit one. series, Dr. Seuss collection, of course. Sure. The Pigeon series. Oh, yes. The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Mm-hmm. And Pete the Cat series. Mm-hmm. Had ATOS readings uh, levels at or above the grade K level. By grade three, we're told that third graders read an average of 39 print books independently. The good news is that most of the popular selection in grade three are also at or above grade level. Charlotte's Web has Mm -hmm. an ATOS of Mm 4.4. Because of Winn-Dixie is number three in popularity and its ATOS is 3.9. Speaking of dogs, oh, it's such a great book. (laughs) Yes. And then grade five also has a number of popular titles pegged at average grade five reading ability. By grade six, however, the ATOS levels begin to decrease. For instance, number four in popularity is Number the Stars by Lois Lowry. It's pegged at 4.5. 
And then Percy Jackson and the Olympians mm-hmm. series is 4.1. Oh, really? That's Oof. kind of 4.1. Big books. I mean, they're like <laughs> big, big ones. Big, yeah. Uh, phone book size books. And, and they're cool. I mean, they're they're kind of drawn from Greek and Roman oh, uh, okay. and myths and things. I'm surprised like it's got that. such a low. Uh, Pretty low, score. but it's about to get worse. In okay. high school, we begin to see books typically assigned in class by the teacher as the most popular, which I'm like, okay, are teachers using this digital database as their classroom hmm. library, library? You know? Yeah. Because uh, in 10th grade, we've got Lord of the Flies. I just don't think kids are, would they pick that on their own? I mean, mm, I feel like eh. um, 5.0 ATOS, Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. but upper grade maturity level. Mm-hmm. Of Mice and Men is number three, 4.5 ATOS. But again, mm-hmm. upper grade maturity level. There's yeah. a, you know, a shooting in that one, mm-hmm. as we recall. The top reads for seniors are Macbeth, Hamlet, Animal Farm, and 1984, which mm-hmm. are all typically assigned. They're eighth through 10th grade level. Again, typically teacher assigned text. At the end of the report, finally, the average ATOS is provided by grade level and grade K through three are in target, but grade four, it falls to 3.5 and it never recovers. In fact, the average ATOS for grade 12 is 5.1, which I get that, you know, it's, you got to think about the maturity level, but that still seemed low. Hard to know how this program works in reality, but I got to think if the goal, I get that, you know, it's like give kids some fun reading, mm-hmm. right? Let them choose. But it seems like if we're trying to straddle both student interest and reading on grade level, we, we could be doing a little bit better on mm-hmm. the on grade level side of things. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, I, I'm totally confused about what it means that the grade level stuff as kids get older. I mean, this is a great mm-hmm. example here, right? This mm-hmm. ATOS thing. I mean... Yeah, of mice and men. I mean, Steinbeck is known for writing in very clear, short sentences. Right. Yes, <laughs> That's yes. Style that was. Yes. Does that mean? Uh, and but right, you wouldn't actually have a fourth grader read that book. Right. So right. I don't know. It, it it makes sense. I mean, I feel like in elementary school the, these these make sense. But my experience with my kids is, you know, pretty pretty quickly you get at some point where they just top out at mm-hmm. these various scales. Right. Um, you know, because they're on to reading. Other, you know, they're reading Harry Potter, they're reading whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of that maybe these these metrics don't work quite as yeah, much. Yeah, but I mean, gosh, I always think I think back to um, you know folks talking about what does it mean to read a college level text, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And usually you hear, I mean, I remember Sue Pimentel talking about this mm-hmm. one time. It's got to be like a little, should be eleventh grade court of text mm-hmm. complexity, you know? And we just didn't just don't see that here, at yeah. least in terms of kids picking their own text. So I think there's got to be, um, you know, more of a spectrum, right? Where Mm -hmm. you've got the stuff you're really interested in, but then the stuff that's going to be reading more like a college textbook. So um, yeah, maybe this is the place where we're not going to pick up on that kind of thing, given Mm -hmm. that this accelerator program, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like we're still not doing a good job. My main surprise is that you did not mention at all Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I bet that was always like number one. On <laughs> it was lists. in there somewhere. I yeah. forgot what grade level, though. Maybe a little bit less. I guess we got to figure out what the Biscuit series is because that <laughs> maybe that's taking its... Yeah, what's that that uh, series your son liked that was sort of morbid about um, <laughs> cannibalism <laughs> Nathan, or something? Nathan's Hales... Nathan... Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales. Highly recommended. Ah, yes, especially the one on the Donner Pass. Yeah, that, right. I didn't see that that, one. that that was one probably a, a low reading level, but higher maturity level. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> or or, or, or uh, gross level. What, I don't know whatever well, that yeah, cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was historically accurate. Yes. Uh, but yes. There you go. All right. Interesting stuff. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Amber.
Well, that is all the time we've got for this week's Gadfly Show. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Pacioli, Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing with Thunder. <laughs> the Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.